The Apostle John was an old man doing hard time on a rock island. As the last living disciple of Jesus, he was the only person left eligible to add to the sacred scripture. Thus, before John closes his eyes for the last time, God communicates to him a revelation. And it moves John emotionally, physically. He writes down what he sees and then he sends it to the churches. God intends for this revelation to be the last lingering image burned into the collective psyche of his church. God wants the church to never take its eyes off this revelation. It is to shape our souls forever. The Greek word translated revelation is the term apocalypse. In our culture, it's become synonymous for cataclysm and destruction and impending doom. But to the Greeks, it meant simply an unveiling or an uncovering. Imagine walking into an art gallery and a sculpture by a famous artist lies under a canvas. Just at the appropriate moment, the curator rips off the fabric, revealing the beauty and genius of the sculptor's work. Well, this is the revelation. Jesus Christ is alive and well. But we don't see his excellence, for he's hidden behind a heavy canvas that separates the spiritual realm from the tangible world. And yet in this book, John rips away the veil. He reveals Jesus in all of his splendor. I like how Paul Mello translates the opening words of verse 1, the official portrait of Jesus Christ. You know, when a United States president leads office, A state-funded oil painting is commissioned. The tradition began in 1796. Several artists, they say, tried to paint George Washington, but it was Gilbert Stuart who painted the classic portrait. And when it comes to Jesus' official portrait, God got it right the first time. He called on John to be the artist. Now, before we're done, John will fill in a whole array of provocative details. We'll talk about falling stars and beasts and hailstones and plagues and marks and the whore of Babylon. And yet we can get sidetracked. It's important to remember the theme of this book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is not about Antichrist, but Jesus Christ. One author writes, the theme of the book isn't 666. It's holy, holy, holy. The point of revelation is not just the unleashing of judgment, but the unveiling of Jesus. This is what God wants to permanently burn into our perspective. Well, John begins, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. In essence, Here's what's next. Here's what's coming up on God's agenda. Now understand what John had already seen. John writes in his first letter, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John had witnessed the first revelation of Jesus. 
the eternal Son of God, as God and with God, before time began, took on flesh and blood. Jesus revealed the Almighty's humility. He came to us to serve and to save. Jesus was, or John was Jesus' cousin, Mary's nephew. Jesus and John had grown up together. He was there when Jesus began his ministry. John saw Jesus walk on water and multiply the loaves and fish and heal the blind eyes and even resurrect Lazarus. John was there when the Roman executioners nailed the piece, Jesus' hand through the piece of wood. He was there three days later when news came that the grave was empty. For 40 days, John was there and spent time with the risen Christ. And John was there on the Mount of Olives when Jesus, the victorious Lord, ascended to heaven back to glory. Yes, John was there for it all. And John did exactly what Jesus had told him to do. He and his fellow disciples had gone into all the world to tell people what they had seen and heard and touched and handled. But now John is alone. The other disciples are dead. Jesus has been gone now for 60 years. And John is wondering, what's next? What's next for him? What's next for Christianity? Jesus had come preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was there when Jesus launched his kingdom. But now it's running headlong into the kingdoms of man. Christians are being attacked by the empire of Rome. The emperor has crucified Peter, has beheaded Paul, and others are also on the chopping block. What's next for God's besieged kingdom? The apostle needs a new revelation, a fresh vision. John knew Jesus was no longer a bloody corpse. His sacrificial work was finished. He had risen and ascended. But what's next? And the answer is this revelation. Well, verse 1 begins. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. God sent and signified this message to John. Signified means to express by signs. And this is the word that has led many Bible teachers to see this book as a message encoded with signs and symbols. When John received this prophecy, he was a prisoner of Rome. And understand, the Romans weren't too fond of manifestos predicting the coming of kings and kingdoms that would threaten to usurp Roman rule. Thus, to avoid censorship, John's letter employed signs and symbols. You could call this book a cryptogram, a coded message. Its symbolism enabled it to slip past Roman security and yet still be understood by Christian readers. And what better code to use than Old Testament symbols. This is why the key to cracking the code, to interpreting Revelation, is to familiarize yourself with Hebrew idioms and imagery. Of this book's 404 verses, 70% are 278 verses, quote, Old Testament references. It has another 360 Old Testament inferences. It's been said the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. 
And that is especially true with the revelation. Well, verse 3 attaches a special promise to this book. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. This is the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing just for reading it. Any attempt to read and obey this book will be met with a blessing. Though parts of Revelation can be tough to interpret, God will reward a sincere effort. He wants this book especially to be etched into our hearts. It's what's next. Well, John continues his introduction. He says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace. And here's the common New Testament greeting, grace and peace. But not only does John greet these churches, so does the triune God who writes through him. For the revelation is from him who is and who was and who is to come. Notice our Father God doesn't just have lots of time. He dwells outside of time. He is eternal. God simultaneously occupies the past, the present, and the future. God sees the end from the beginning. Think of it. God was. He is the God of history. Understand, history isn't a random succession of events. History is his story. God also is. He always is. He's always present and current. He is ever in the moment. Psalm 46 verse 1 calls him a very present help in trouble. And God is to come. His presence, his power, his purpose fills up our future. See, a central theme of Revelation is the second coming of Christ. But God is always coming to a troubled marriage. He comes. To a broken-hearted teenager, he comes. To a depressed housewife, he comes. To an out-of-work dead, he comes. To a believer struggling with doubt, he comes. To a rebel on the run, God comes. This is God's favorite posture. He is coming. But John also brings greetings from God's Spirit. He says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now remember, we discussed this back at Christmas time in Isaiah 11. Throughout Scripture, there is only one Holy Spirit. He is an individual, not seven different spirits. Yet Isaiah predicted that in the life of Messiah, the one Holy Spirit would have a sevenfold ministry. Remember Isaiah 11 verse 2 reads, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. First, he is the Spirit of the Lord. And he is the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Seven in all. The Spirit rested on Jesus in seven marvelous ways, and he rests on his church now in those same ways. And last but not least, the readers of Revelation are greeted from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. In all that Jesus did and said, he represented his father faithfully. Jesus is the reliable witness. He is the truth teller. 
And he is also the firstborn from the dead. Jesus' human body was the first to undergo the metamorphosis of resurrection. It was Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 who described resurrection. This corruptible body must put on incorruption. And this mortal body must put on immortality. You see, Jesus was the very first to escape decay and death. Now, his resurrection is our hope. Jesus is the truth teller. He is the grave robber. And he is the ultimate ruler. For John calls him the ruler over the kings of the earth. And this was important to the believers in ancient Asia. At the time, Christianity was an oppressed minority. Yet this revelation passed on to the churches was so convincing. Those who read it knew that it was only a matter of time before the rulers of this world bowed before Jesus. He will ultimately reign over all the earth. For Jesus is the truth teller. He's the grave robber. He's the ultimate ruler. And he's also the soul lover and the sin washer. For John writes in verses 5 and 6, To him who loved us, he loves us then and he loves us now. And so much so, he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Jesus didn't offer a proxy. It wasn't the blood of a lamb that was spilt for us. Note this. It was his own blood. This gets personal for Jesus. The price Jesus paid for you and me was that of his own blood. It was personal. And he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Jesus is also the glory sharer and the priest maker. Our destiny is to rule with Jesus. He'll end the long-running revolt of Satan. Once and for all, Jesus will strip the devil of his authority and then award it to us. And then he'll make us priests as well as kings. There is a priestly caste in heaven for all eternity. Believers in Jesus will enjoy unrivaled access and a close proximity to our great God. It's interesting, like the Holy Spirit, Jesus also has a sevenfold ministry. He is the truth teller and the grave robber and the ultimate ruler and the soul lover and the sin washer, and the glory sharer, and the priest maker. And how should we respond to him? John shouts it out. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Praise him. Shout amen. Amen means I agree. John was moved by this truth of not just what Jesus did, but of who he is right now, today. Let's also be motivated by his unveiling. For one truth is certain. Jesus is not done moving. No, he's not. Verse 7, forecasts the moment of truth. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Jesus is coming back to this planet and to the people who crucified him. Now, technically, there are two second comings of Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Jesus comes in the clouds for his church. This lost world won't know what happened. He comes as a thief in the night. 
But here he comes with clouds, and every eye will see him. This is an in-your-face encounter. Jesus will return to settle scores and to exact justice and to judge evil on this earth. We'll talk more about this later, but Jesus comes in the clouds at the rapture. He'll surprise the world and take his church. But then he comes with clouds on the final day. He'll touch down on the Mount of Olives to end man's rebellion and to establish his earthly kingdom. And notice the addendum here to verse 7. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. This sounds a lot like Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. You should read it later. It's a prophetic irony that in the end, the Jews will realize their colossal mistake. Imagine the Jews. They crucified their own Savior. They wounded their healer. And since Jesus has now ascended to heaven, he's sitting at God's right hand. He has finished his work of salvation, and his spirit is busy gathering his church. But once that church has been caught up, God's wrath will come down. A Christ-rejecting world will be punished. You know, people today, in this modern skeptical age, they mock this idea. But in that day, they will not escape. The old Baptist preacher Vance Havner once wrote, Some of us get laughed at by the swivel chair experts in eschatology. But when God splits the skies and the stars fall and the moon turns to blood and men cry for rocks and mountains to fall on them, it's going to be pretty hard for some of us to keep from saying, I told you so. Jesus came to earth the first time to pardon, but he is coming a second time to punish The Lamb of God that was laid on the altar is also the lion who will roar. It's a jungle out there. Because of man's rebellion, the world we live in is full of dangerous predators. But Jesus is the king of the jungle. He'll return to prove his superiority. And it'll be one of those I told you so kind of days. Today the world scoffs. If Jesus is alive, where is he? But on that day, every eye will see him, only then it will be too late. And this is why John writes, And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. They'll mourn, but they were warned, and they never took heed. And for many people, history will have an unhappy ending. John himself sighs, verse 7, Even so, amen. And here Jesus interjects, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. Of course, Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. Jesus is in essence saying, I am the A to Z. He is the beginning and the end and everything in between. Then Jesus takes the title that was earlier attributed to the Father. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is claiming to be God, equal to the Father. They have the same status. And so verse 9, John continues, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God 
and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Oh, around 90 AD or so, a second wave of persecution targeted the church. The emperor Domitian followed in Nero's footsteps. He arrested and sentenced John to be boiled in hot oil. And yet history tells us that God intervened and miraculously delivered John. And since Domitian couldn't kill him, the emperor banished John to Patmos. Patmos is an island in the Aegean Sea. It's 10 miles long by 6 miles wide. It's 15 miles off the coast of Turkey. It's just a barren, rocky, desolate land. In the first century, it held a penal colony where Roman prisoners were sent to do hard labor. Patmos was the first century Alcatraz. And realize, John is now 90 years old. I mean, he's frail and feeble and scarred over most of his body. Souvenirs he's picked up from his brush with death in the boiling oil. And now he's pounding a hammer in this rock quarry. And John was not the only believer suffering under this Roman reign of terror. All across the empire, Christians were being persecuted for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And surely it made John think. Remember to this point, all John had seen was the first revelation of Jesus. The infinite had become an infant. God's Son came to earth through the lowest door. Jesus was God, but he laid aside the perks of deity. In fact, Jesus came as a servant. He could have thrown his weight around and intimidated us into compliance. Instead, Jesus overwhelmed us with his grace. His mercy and tenderness disarmed us and slipped past our defenses. Our hearts were won by his love. And to bear our punishment, Jesus made himself defenseless. He laid bare his back to take our stripes. But now John... He has some stripes of his own. Have you ever seen a burn victim? Imagine John covered with those scars. Oh, he's thankful now that Jesus has won his heart. But who's going to win this battle? A battle is raging around John. Good and evil, God and Satan are slugging it out. It's a jungle out there. John believed in Jesus, but he needed more than a servant to model or even a savior to rely on. For John to endure hardships, he and his friends needed the hope of a conquering king. John and the persecuted church needed a second revelation, the unveiling of an exalted, glorified Christ. They need a savior who's also a heavyweight champ. Reminds me of the middle-aged woman with the incurable disease. She checked into the hospital thinking her days were numbered. But that night, she had a vision. An angel told her that she would live another 30 years. Oh, she was so excited. She thought, if I'm going to live for three more decades, I should do it in style. So while she was in the hospital, she got a facelift. Some liposuction. A little tummy tuck. Well, after she left, she was crossing the street, and suddenly, boom! Boom! She got hit by a truck and died. When she got to heaven, the lady saw the angel that had visited her the night before. You told me I was going to live another 30 years. That's when the angel replied, yeah, but I didn't recognize you. 
I'm afraid that most people's problem, that's most people's problem with Jesus. They don't recognize him. They're so confused about his first revelation that there's no way they would recognize Jesus, the Lord Jesus, as he is today. You know, over the years, artists have painted some really pathetic portraits of Jesus. I have a big problem with all this. Some of these portraits of Jesus. He's depicted as weak and frail. Goodness, that's not Jesus. Or he glows in the dark. You ever seen the incandescent Jesus? Or he wears these pretty white robes and takes a sissified posture. That's nauseating. Or he uses curlers in his hair. Jesus with curlers. He looks suspiciously effeminate. It's tragic. We've mistaken the guy that got angry at the Jewish hierarchy who made a whip of cords with his bare hands and overturned tables and bounced the crooked priest from the temple. We've misinterpreted him as a gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The real Jesus, friends, was a Jewish carpenter. He was a man's man. He was a blue-collar guy. Jesus was no stranger to hard work. He pounded nails before the days of power tools. Jesus was a carpenter that liked to fish. Yet if Christians today are confused as to what Jesus was like when he lived among us, they have no clue as to what he's like today and how he will appear when the world sees him again. This is why we need a second revelation. Jesus is still a man, but now a glorified man, an exalted man. Jesus is the man that all men were meant to be. Jesus' humility was just temporary. Now he's back on heaven's throne with the authority he has won on earth. Realize the person that we serve and follow no longer walks on water. That's just kid stuff now. Today he rides on clouds. He rules in heaven. He commands an army and he doles out justice as well as mercy. And this is the revelation John received on Patmos and that he sends to the seven churches. What's next? It is the glorified Christ. And John remembers the day that this revelation came to him. Verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. It was a Sunday. You know, already the early church was living in the wake of Jesus' resurrection. The Jews gathered on Saturday, the last day of the week, but the Christians met on the first day of the week, on Sunday, the day that Jesus rose again. Sundays were treated like many Easter's in the early church. The first church preached the cross, but they didn't leave Jesus there. For Jesus rose to reign. After this revelation, they all knew to live in the light of the exalted Christ. Well, John says that he was in the Spirit. In other words, he was dialed in, man. He was logged in. He was worshiping God. He was communing with the Lord. When he heard behind him a loud voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. The kingdom that Jesus had launched began and still grows spiritually. But it'll end... It'll end coming to power tangibly and politically. And Jesus is the first, and he is the last. And this should shape our duty today as Christians. We are part of the spiritual kingdom that Jesus began. That's still serving and still saving, and we're called on to help. 
But we will endure persecution and resist temptation only if we know what's next. For ultimately, all wrongs will be righted. Good will triumph. God's people will win in the end. The triumphant Christ is next. And this is the theme of John's revelation. And then Jesus said to John, What you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, this wasn't an exhaustive list of the churches in first century Asia. There were many more. But Jesus chose these seven churches for a reason. We'll talk about that next week. And here the plot thickens, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now John describes Jesus, but before we read his description, note where he is at. He is in the midst of the lampstands. Later, we'll learn that the seven lampstands, or the seven-branch menorah, is a symbol of the seven churches. In the Old Testament temple, the priest was in charge of lighting and tending to this menorah. Likewise, the church is the New Testament temple, and Jesus is our priest, and thus he works among the churches, or the lampstands, to keep us filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit and to keep our light burning brightly. Hey, here's what's next. It's the glorified Christ. But where do we find him? Where where should we look for him? Well, Jesus is hanging out in his church. He's in the midst of the lampstands. See, this is why I'm always saying to you, if you love Jesus, you'll love his church. The church is where the action is. Because Jesus is in his church. I'm sorry, but you're not going to find him at the Rotary Club or at the Little League or down at the golf course or at the PTA or in the political action committee or wherever else you've been looking. Jesus prefers to work in and through his church. Remember, he told his disciples, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Jesus is here in the midst of the lampstands. When John sees Jesus, he's still a man. Son of man speaks of his humanity, but John sees him here only like the son of man, like the son of man. In other words, his visage now is very different. This revelation is not what John had heard and seen and his hands had handled. This is the warrior and ruler, not just God's servant and our Savior. And John is going to go on now to describe the king of the jungle. He's going to describe the glorified Christ, and he starts with what Jesus wears to work. He's clothed with a garment down to the feet. Commoners and peasants wore knee-length robes. Only a king's robe drug the ground. This shows that Jesus is now king of kings. He's girded about the chest with a golden band. The Old Testament priest wore a golden breastplate. And Jesus is also priest. As priest, he intercedes for his church. 
In the Old Testament, remember, there was a separation of church and state. The king was prohibited from being a priest. But today, John sees Jesus ruling the nations from God's throne, a king, and working in God's temple, the church, a priest. And then he sees, verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as a sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Years ago, I had an album cover that tried to replicate this portrait of Jesus. The result, quite frankly, was grotesque almost sacrilegious. I mean, don't try to envision this portrait literally. Remember, Revelation was encoded with Old Testament images. For starters, Jesus' white hair isn't a bleach job. He's not getting gray. It speaks here of his moral and spiritual purity. And his eyes aren't bloodshot like a flame of fire. No, that speaks of their searching scrutiny And their searchability. Jesus looks, he he looks with a penetrating gaze. Understand, Jesus doesn't look past you as if you don't matter. No, he cares about you deeply. You see it in his eyes. He doesn't really look at you as if he's sizing you up to figure you out, as if, you know, he's out to judge you or scrutinize you. And he doesn't look to you. He certainly doesn't do that as if he needs anything from you. No, Jesus is sufficient in and of himself. But Jesus looks through you. That's what he does. Those eyes, his stare penetrates and uncovers the real you. This is why you can't hide your sin from Jesus. You can't play the hypocrite under this penetrating great gaze. And Jesus' feet, his brass feet, that doesn't mean he's a lead foot. You shouldn't let him behind the wheel of a car. No, brass is a mixture of iron and copper. Iron is strong, but it rusts. Copper keeps its shine, but it bends. But brass is a mixture of strength and endurance. So when Jesus puts his foot down, that means that he means what he says. When he puts his foot down, he's being emphatic. And the voice of Jesus is like the sound of many waters, literally a waterfall. I'll never forget once going to the bottom of Niagara Falls and looking at the waterfall. Literally, you can scream into the ear of the person standing next to you and you won't be heard. The water is that loud. Well, Jesus had spoken to John while on earth. And now for 60 years, John had been listening to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit, the whispers of his spirit in his heart. But this is different. The lion now roars. Jesus' voice is like a waterfall, John says. It drowns out all other voices. Today, we're surrounded by all kinds of competing opinions of political pundits and social media and other talking heads. 
But the voice of Jesus will one day muffle all other influences. One day, Jesus will get everybody's attention. And in his right hand, Jesus holds seven stars. Verse 20 explains, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The lampstands are the churches. Jesus said, we are the light of the world. And the stars are angels. Now, it could be that every church has a guardian angel. Isn't that an interesting thought? If so, I'm sure we make our guy work overtime. Some of you guys and me. The Greek term here for angels means simply messenger. And so that's why some have assumed that it could also refer to pastors. Not to say your pastor is an angel, but... Well, not hardly. But we are messengers of Jesus to his church. Either way, whether stars or or angels or pastors are, are angels or stars, the point is that they both are in the Lord's right hand. And this is the hand that speaks of authority, the right hand, which means any authority vested in the church comes from Jesus. All pastors are accountable to that right hand. Don't forget it. Over 16. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. The scripture speaks of itself as a two-edged sword. It's sharp and incisive. It cuts coming and going. It opens us up and lays us bare and fillets our pride. Today, Jesus works powerfully, still works powerfully through his word. Finally, John describes Jesus' overall countenance. It was like the sun shining in its strength. Eyeballing the glorified Christ is like looking directly into the sun. His glory blinds us to every other interest. Well, John, he writes, and when I saw him, boom, I fell at his feet as dead. John said, wow, I was speechless. Now, now remember, on earth, Jesus and John had hung out together. They were friendly. They'd gone fishing. Now John sees Jesus and his knees wobble. He collapses. He hits the deck. The glorified Christ takes his breath away. You remember, during his time in office, President Obama would play basketball with his aides. And I'm sure they had lots of fun. But I'll bet you nobody hacked the president. You know, if Obama was on a breakaway, you you just let him have the basket. You didn't run down there and try to hack him. I can promise you that. You don't risk injuring the commander-in-chief. You treat the president different than you do a pal. Some of you need to hear this now. Because the same is true of Jesus. At his first coming, we learn that Jesus wants to be our friend. He is our Savior. But this revelation teaches us that Jesus is more than our friend. Jesus is not your homebody, your homeboy, whatever it is. (laughs) Jesus isn't your homeboy. He's not the guy upstairs. He's not the big man. Jesus deserves and expects your respect. 
He is King of kings and Lord of lords. John collapsed at his feet and worshipped. We should too. But notice Jesus' reply to John. It's so beautiful. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Jesus comforts John. His clothes, his hair, his eyes, his feet, his mouth are different than at his first revelation. But the one thing that hasn't changed about Jesus is his heart. For he still loves us so much. And that's when he says, And I have the keys of Hades and of death. If you're concerned about heaven and hell, you should be. If you're concerned about your future and what happens to you after you die, Jesus is the go-to guy. For no one else has a say in that matter. Jesus alone has the keys to afterlife and to end of life. He has the final say on when you die and where you go. You need to take this up with Jesus. Well, John closes the chapter with a helpful outline of the book of Revelation. The angel says to him, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Now, the things which you have seen, what is that? That's chapter 1. It's this vision that John received of the risen, glorified Christ. The things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3. Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches. Jesus was living in the church age, and it has now lasted 2,000 years. But the rest of the book, the things which will take place after this, or chapters 4 through 22, are the things that happens once the church is caught away, then sweeping judgments will pave the way for the ultimate triumph of King Jesus. And we'll study that from chapter 4 through the end of the book. So what's next in God's plan? Jesus is next. Jesus in all his glory is the next big deal in the plan of God. He is the A to Z. He is the beginning and end. Let this revelation burn into your heart. Let it sear your heart with the realization of the glorified Christ. And if you do, you'll find the keys to living your life in victory.